I'm excited this morning because we have just started our second service in SMCC and just now Pastor Sean asked, how many of you were there just now? I think not many of you were there. I could see a few empty seats here. So some of you may have gone over to SMCC this morning itself. But it's so good. The Lord is really moving His church forward. Amen? He's such a good God. Such a good God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You know, time just flies past. Before we know it, Christmas was over and then it was just Chinese New Year. And as soon as we blink an eye, Easter will be here. Whoa. You know, time just flies nowadays. Everything seems so accelerated. And we seem to constantly need things instantly at, available to us. For example, if you need a solution, you go for Google. You know, you just bring out, you stick out your phone, you swipe or you press at the press of the button, you get your answer. Any query or fact-finding just needs a quick consultation with Google or Siri. And voila, plop at the touch of a uh, a swipe of a finger or even the touch of the touch screen nowadays, Mr. Google and Mystery at your service. You know, when you're lost, uh, you don't know what to eat for the moment, whether you're local or you're visiting from a foreign land, all you have to do again is to take out your phone and you have an app and you just click. I see some of you even looking at your phones nowadays, looking for information. You know, who is this chap? By the way, I'm Pastor Samkyong up here. I'm preaching this morning and I'm one of the pastors in SIBKL and I also lead a church plant. But any information you need, you can just, at the flick of your finger, you will find that the answer is just there. Now, why am I talking about all these things? Well, I was just, as I was thinking about the sermon this morning, I decided on the title, Sign, Seal and Delivered. And you know, this, this idiom came from actually a legal transaction that people were actually signing on a paper, a piece of paper. You know what a paper is, right? You all still know, right? Okay, it's not such a thing of the past. Maybe you go to a museum, one day you might find a piece of paper there. Now this, everything is paperless. So when you sign a piece of paper, then you close it envelope, you seal it, you chop it, and then you deliver it to the recipient. And that's the end of a contract. I thought that would be very appropriate because today we are looking at uh, uh, Ruth chapter 4. And Ruth chapter 4 completes a transaction, a transaction of redemption. And who are the people that are involved in this sign, seal, and delivered of that contract? Well, but before we go into Ruth chapter 4, I want to talk about what we are doing nowadays. Everything is paperless. Gone are the days when the only thing paperless are the public toilets. But we still... We still do everything in our ability to want things instantly. We really live in a very convenient and sheltered time, don't you think? Right. Everything you want is instantly available. You want food, you go to the Grab app, it comes delivered to you. But what happens in this instant culture that we are in? Ah, our minds are gradually being shaped and being stealthily moulded to conform to this instant culture of the day. We want things instantly. Whether we like it or not, we need to realise that there is this urgency inside us, impatience inside us. And especially for our younger friends, those of the below 30s, our millennial, our Z generation, you, you, you grew up with all this technology around you. So you're so used to it. But because of these social expectations we live in, it also colours our spiritual expectations. Because of the social expectations we live in, it also colours our spiritual expectations. 
or both the older, not only the younger, but also the older above the 40s and also the younger generation. But together, we need to face these challenges of that because of our common belief. And it is a common challenge to all of us. We may think that from, we used to have this unwavering trust in a sovereign God that will always turn things around in his own time. Whether even if it takes a lifetime or two lifetimes, we still trust to now our thought maybe there is a complete trust in the sovereign God who will eventually bring about redemption and vindication? Ah, now you will ask, what's the difference, pastor? The difference is, we tend to question God more often nowadays. We tend to ask, why? Why, oh God, are things taking so long? Isn't there an app that will help channel your solutions to us faster? Why isn't there a signal in this place? I can't get you, God. I can't get you because there's no signal in this place. Am I right or not? Maybe not to that extent. Not to that extent of digitalization, but somewhere along the lines, right? Do I see some sense? Am I the only one in the hall thinking like this? Well, there's some laughter. Yeah, I think there's some truth in it. Many of us want things urgently, impatiently. We live in the digital age after all. But what has happened is that our perseverance in waiting upon God, our resilience against impatience, waiting for God to provide an answer to our prayer, tends to be worn down in the wake of this culture, this external milieu that's around us. And it has crept into our thinking, our behavior, our feelings, our interaction with one another. Unconsciously, we think and feel and behave like that if you're not careful. But then again, thoughts and feelings, it is, if you reflect upon it, it would probably never bother Naomi or Ruth, at least of all Boaz for that matter. But pastor, you would snigger and say, these people will live in a different culture, a different time. They have no internet, they have no connection, no connectivity. Ah, they have better connectivity than we have. They are better engaged with the people around them than we actually are. If you think about it, we are more isolated from one another due to the devices we all have. They are connected. And also, if you believe the Bible to be true, then you also believe that the Bible says that the Word of God is applicable in season and out of season, whether the time is appropriate or favorable or not. They have, indeed, Naomi and Ruth have their own challenges. But these challenges may even be worse than ours. Our cultures may be different, but they are, and our core beliefs remain the same. Amen? We still believe in the same God. I hope so. I believe all of us believe in the same God. And this God will turn things around, and He's faithful to His promises. And they all remain the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Amen? I'm glad you all agree with me. But ah, even so, even so, I like to point out that both Naomi and Ruth stand way out from us in their resilience and perseverance in pursuing redemption. Way beyond comparison. There are two generations standing together, Naomi and Ruth, mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law, facing these adversities together. And they've done it so wonderfully so powerfully. And that's what the book of Ruth is about. 
I find it very difficult to just to preach from one chapter alone because it's a whole story is woven into one another. It starts from chapter 1 and ends today in chapter 4. But you might remember that chapter 1 started in a situation that was utter bleakness. You see, chapter 1 is told from a standpoint of Naomi, not from Ruth, who had a husband named Elimelech with two sons. And they lived in a time there was famine in Judah. And they had to leave the land and go to a foreign land. You know, it's very dangerous at those times to go to foreign. Even now, I had a friend who was recently in Russia and he had evacuated Russia because of the war that was going on and came back and now he's in the Middle East and he's waiting, he's trying out the land there before he brings his whole family across. It's dangerous to be in a foreign land. You need to scout out the land. You, you need to be careful, especially if you have a family. But then what happened? The main breadwinner, Elimelech, died, leaving Naomi a widow with two sons and then they married foreign women with foreign gods. For 10 years, they were married and they were childless. Now that's pretty sad, isn't it? Especially in the culture of the day, when the childless would take it as a punishment from God and people around them, both the Jews and the Moabs, the Moabites, will reject them because you are being punished by God. And they might even have been ostracized by society. Setback after setbacks. And then what happened? The sons died. And then one of the daughter-in-law stayed and the other one went home. And Naomi then came back to the homeland to where the famine was about to live. And she said this, The Almighty has made my life very bitter. Very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Wow. Those are pretty difficult words to say, but that's exactly what Naomi felt. That certainly was meant to summarize the earlier part of Naomi and Ruth's lives. But their theology was that God still existed. God is sovereign. And everything, everything that they experience, one way or another, still comes from God's hands. Naomi simply says, God has made my life very bitter without questioning His reality. Think about that. Their faith is that strong. Their resilience, their perseverance in a God that's living, it's still there. She still believes in Him. He says He's God, even though He has dealt this bitterness to her. And that set the tone for the beginning of the book of Ruth. And you have gone through that, right? But now, Naomi was not entirely accurate in the statement. You know why? Because God didn't bring her back empty, did He? God wasn't ruthless. He brought her back with this amazing woman, Ruth. And Naomi thought there was nobody for Ruth to marry. Who is, I mean, she's a Moabitess coming back to a Jewish land. Who's going to marry her? There will be no redeemer, nothing to carry on the name of her son, Mahlon, Ruth's previous husband. But she was wrong about it. And we need to learn a lesson here. Many times when we thought God has left us empty, God has left us in complete bleakness. It's not true. God is always there behind the scene. In our darkest times, in our bleakest moments, we tend not to see things clearly. I mean, I'm sure you would have experienced some time ago when things seems to go wrong, setback after setback happens, and you begin to be confused what to do next. 
and we form the wrong expectations. We need people around us to help us see more clearly. Ruth from this Old Testament book has been sent by God to help you in your times of bleakness, to help you see clearly, to draw lessons from it, how God is always there behind your bleak seasons. Amen? But you say, what bleak season? Did we just celebrate Chinese New Year? Did we celebrated Christmas? This was such joyful times. I mean, I really enjoyed it. It's like three years of Chinese New Year compressed into one. 21, 22, 23, all in one Chinese New Year. But it is also said, for every tall mountain, there is always a deep valley. In the midst of every celebration and joyful festival, there will always be some amongst us, like Naomi, who either couldn't bear to join in the festivities, they are around us. Or be that person appearing normal, but deep within them, they are burdened with discouragement and disappointment. It may not be as bad as facing famine or loss of the family members or the waywardness of the family members or facing financial distress with no home, no land, no source of income or barrenness, brokenness. But that has a feeling of disappointment, of anxiety deep in our hearts that you don't seem to be able to get rid of. On the surface, it's smiling, but inside, there's something inside there. And you don't know what to do with it. That's bleakness. And that was what Naomi and Ruth were going through. Bleakness. Utter bleakness. So if that's you, or you needing restoration, or redemption, or a rescue from that situation, I want to encourage you that God has not abandoned you, not even for a moment, as God has not abandoned Ruth, has not abandoned Naomi. God has not abandoned us even for that moment because in His sovereignty, He has already prepared a roof for you in time to come. He has already planned for a Boaz to appear in your life, to appear at the right moment, to pull you out of your miry clay of bleakness and to set you on a solid foundation as He did David in Psalm 42 to secure redemption for you in due process, signed, sealed, and delivered. At the end of the day, it's our faithful God you can trust in. And who's that God? It's Jesus, who's going to be your true Redeemer, your ultimate Redeemer. And I'll tell you why later. But it may not be you that's going through this. This moment, you might not be feeling bleak or broken or needing redemption. Hey, but hey, there's always someone around. It could be the one that's sitting next to you. Or you may know that someone, right? Go on, tell the one next to you. Jesus redeems you. Go on, tell the neighbor, Jesus redeems you. Jesus is going to redeem you. He is the living Redeemer who is going to redeem you from whatever it may not be today, but in time to come. There will be a day that you need it. Yes, God will redeem each one that returns to Him, that turns to Him, that will repent and call upon Him. But first of all, we need to really understand what redemption is. What does it mean to be redeemed? In the way it's used in the book of Ruth, it means to, well, in Hebrew it's gal, eh? gal. And it means to buy back, to restore to put correct what was wrong despite the difficult circumstances. That's the way it's used in Ruth. But as we look at it, and I hope by the end of these 20 minutes, you'll be able to understand that redemption has a much 
broader extent. While the word gal is the, the verb that is used to redeem, there is also a noun called goel, or redeemer. And this is what chapter 4 is about. We are talking about the redeemer. It means a close relative or a kinsman or someone who can take action on your behalf and you can't. But more, more often than not, the word goel refers to Lord God the Redeemer. When you look at other portions of the Old Testament, Goel refers to Lord God the Redeemer in most of the 105 occurrences in the Old Testament. So hold this thought in your mind for the moment and we will come back to it in a short while. So in the book of Ruth, the word Goel was used exclusively to refer to the kinsman Redeemer or the close relative that will buy back the land we have come through chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. 1, get no land, nothing. 2, Boaz appears. 3, there begins the wonderful uh, 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 wooing of Boaz by Ruth. And then finally, now we come to chapter 4, the settling, the closing of the deal. And we need to have the Redeemer to appear, to buy back the land on behalf of Naomi, Dizzy's husband, Elimelech. And this comes from a special provision in the book in the Mosaic Law, in the Book of God, you find it in Leviticus 25, that the land may be returned to its original owner or their family who have absolutely no means to acquire it because of this provision, that a kinsman redeemer, a relative, may be able to purchase the land, to give it back to them so that they may perpetuate their generations. The name of the person may continue to appear on the land, the deed of the land, so that they may have a property to their name. Now, you have to understand, in the culture of that day, it's not about just buying a piece of land. It's not like just buying a, a condo or a, a terrace house or a property. It's more than that. In those days, the land is everything. Everything about life revolves around that piece of land. It's their livelihood. It, it's their source of income, their social standing, their family life, and the perpetuation, as I say, of generations. All revolve around the possession of a piece of land that they can call their own. Now with that tone, you begin to understand why it's so important, so important for Naomi and Ruth to have that piece of land back. Or else they've got absolutely nothing. No land, no property, no source of income, no dignity, nothing. No one to carry on the name. And that's why they need a redeemer in that situation. Even the progenitor of future generations, Ruth, she didn't know it at the time. She is tied into the redemption of the land. They say it in Ruth, chapter 4, verse 10. This Boaz who said it, I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Mahlon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the date with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family and from his hometown. Today, you are witnesses. Now, Naomi and Ruth were in a terrible situation more than any other people in desperate situations. They needed rescuing from their plight. They ran out of the road, nowhere else to turn, nobody to turn to, except to glean at the harvest fields, which you heard of earlier. Nothing, no definite source of income, no body to turn to, except God for their redemption. That God may send a Redeemer. And God didn't fail them. When evil and misfortune befell them, God turned it around for 
good like he did for Joseph. You know how Joseph was sold off by his brothers, sent to a foreign land, jailed, and then almost framed by Potiphar's wife. But at the end, Joseph said to his brothers who met him in Genesis 50 verse 20, he says this, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done so that many lives may be saved. When God does something, God is a tremendous multitasker. He turns things around, but the benefits go way beyond the primary recipient. If you are faithful and you're blessed by God, it goes way beyond yourself. It goes to your family, the loved ones around you. It goes to your children, and it goes down to your children's children too. The Lord does that. He is a tremendous multitasker. Trust that God just doesn't have one agenda in each of our lives. And that is what God is doing to Naomi and Ruth. I'll tell you why in a very short while. Well, some of you are convinced and say amen, but not all of you are very convinced. Okay, let me go on and see. Who is the Redeemer that's going to appear in Ruth chapter 4? You know what's the problem with doing the last chapter in the book? The suspense is gone. You all know the, you all know the answer already, right? The, the cat is out of the bag, and you probably would have guessed who the Redeemer is by now, right? Has to be Boaz. Boaz is the kinsman Redeemer. He made his first appearance in chapter 2. The knight in shining armour, Ruth was gleaning in the... Well, I mean, she wasn't gleaning at first. She was just walking around, and she saw her, and she made the servants treat her kindly. So there was this white in shining armour, Gentle, kind, caring, and protective. Then in chapter 3, last week, how many of you were here last week? Okay, quite a number. I see the majority here. You heard Pastor Jeffrey and the rest, I, I think, who was the other pastor who was preaching? Pastor Isaac, right? Who was also preaching last week. And you heard how Naomi came up with this fantastic plan, this strange wooing protocol that is unheard of. And, 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 Ruth agreed to it. She became the executor of that protocol. Going into the threshing floor in the middle of the night, good thing by God's abundant grace that Ruth and Boaz didn't fall into sin that night. Imagine a strange woman going and lying at your feet in the middle of the threshing floor in the corner of it. A lot of things could have happened. But that's how it is when we're in a desperate situation, right? That's what Naomi and Ruth were in, they were in a desperate situation. We tend not to think clearly and then we take matters into our own hands, helping God perhaps to solve the problem quickly, you know, close the deal quickly, help them to lie my tin chiong. You know, in Chinese lie my tin chiong is, you know, to, to close the deal, seal the deal in a very intimate way. Now, how many of us have been in that situation before? Okay, don't put up your hands, all right? You, you don't have to put up your hands. We all have been there, one way or another. We have been there. We, want to, we are impatient. Remember, we're talking about impatience and lack of resilience. We want God to close the deal quickly. But thank God for His grace that He protected Naomi and Ruth from further setbacks. And God is that. God does protect us. Too. We can thank God that God has surrounded Naomi and Ruth with a man that is made of sterner stuff. Boaz, a man of kindness, a man of integrity, honour and kindness. He did the right thing and the most honourable thing by leaving a promise and keeping it the very next day. Do we have men like this in the house of God? Do we have men like this in the house of God? You can put up your hands now. 
Yes, I'm glad we have. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. You know, I was imparting recently with the men of Valor at their first, uh, uh, what do you call it, meeting for year 2023. Uh, there was about a couple of Saturdays ago. I noticed that all of them, all of them were working family men. And without exception, they were also serving the Lord. For years and years, they were faithfully serving the Lord in so many different ministries. From the workplace ministry to the connect ministries, hospitality, alpizo, prayer altars, almost all of them were working men, busy throughout the weekday and serving the Lord. Wow. They were coming together regularly to uplift and to encourage one another. Whoa! As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Proverbs 27, 70. And that's what they've been doing. They're like the Boazes that God is preparing for those in need, for their families, for their friends, for the community. And I know whom I can call on anytime I need a kinsman redeemer the men of Ella. Praise God for them. Men of SIB, if you want to be godly men of steel, you want to be the unsung heroes of faith, go visit the men of Ella. Join them. Amen? You see, I'm plugging for them. No, I'm not just doing an advertising. I'm very encouraged by them. They are really the men of Ella, the army of God. That's amongst us. And that's the stuff Boaz is made of. So we thought we know Boaz. And he was going to be the kinsman redeemer. We can glean from chapters 3 and 4 for the criteria of the kinsman redeemer. What were the criteria that he had to fulfill in order to be the kinsman redeemer? He has to be a near relative, first of all. Secondly, the kinsman redeemer has to be willing. And thirdly, he has to be able to deliver at the end of the day. That's most important. It's like you fly high, but you don't finish well. He has to complete all three criteria to be the kinsman redeemer. First of all, the near relative. Well, Boaz claims that in Ruth 3, verse 12. Although it's true I'm a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another more closely related than I. Though he is the kinsman redeemer, suddenly a rival appears. Whoa, is there going to be a spoiler here with a rival appearing on the scene? Let's read on. Was Boaz willing? Yes, he was. In Ruth, the next verse, Ruth 3.13, found Boaz saying, Stay here for the night. And in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good. So if the rival wants, he will be willing to give way. Let him redeem you. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. He steps in. You say, I will back up. I will do it. I'm there. Lie here until morning. So Boaz certainly indicated that he was willing following the nighttime encounter at the threshing floor. Thirdly, Boaz must be able to deliver. Well, this is the tough part. A redeemer could easily have signed on the part with the claim that he is a close relative. Indeed, there was a man other than Boaz that had nearer ties to Elimelech. The Bible says so, but he never named him. He's probably either the brother of Elimelech or a first cousin. He was willing even to seal the deal when asked in Ruth chapter 4. He says, I will redeem it. But then he backed out. It was finally Boaz who sealed the deal when Ruth was brought into the equation. Ah, but here comes the twist. Is Boaz able to deliver? Looking at our grab food deliveries and Lala Mufa, I think he should take a lesson from them. 
No matter, no matter how, they will make sure that things are delivered to your house. But wait a minute, you ask, what's that? They already closed the deal. What's there for Boaz to deliver? Hasn't land already been redeemed by Boaz when the deal was sealed? You know what they do those days to seal the deal? They take off a sandal and they pass it to the other person. You know, that's how they seal the deal. But no, redemption isn't just about the land. It's about lives. Lives of future generations in exchange for lives lost. That was why Ruth came into the equation in Ruth chapter 4, verse 10. Boaz has to raise a descendant for Elimelech to complete the redemption of the land. As I said earlier, it's not about the land. Even in those days, it's everything. The land is about life, it's about livelihood, it's about social standing. But here, redemption, when you talk about redemption, about the land, it also involves the life. And in order to complete the redemption, Ruth has to be in the picture. Now, Ruth was previously married to Mahlon for 10 years and was barren. That is the problem there. With this new marriage with an older man, Boaz, work out this time? When he didn't work with a younger man? Could Boaz deliver as a kinsman redeemer? Ha! This is where I won't answer you. Before I answer that, there are two interesting observations at the end of Ruth chapter 4. The first is a huge response of approval once the deal was signed. And this response of approval was done by the elders and the leaders who were at the gate. And it was also followed by a prophetic prayer. A prophetic prayer made by the elders and witnesses at the gate of the city of Bethlehem. And it goes like this. In Ruth chapter 4, verse 11. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord, and this is the prayer, May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Isaac, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrata and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman. Note at that time, the offspring wasn't born yet. It was just a prayer, but it was prophetic. That the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Wow. Recognizing the barrenness of Ruth, they blessed the couple with blessings of fertility, of both Rachel and Leah. And you know Rachel and Leah, the daughters-in-law of, or rather the wives of Jacob. And you know that between them and the maids, they formed the whole 12 tribes of Israel and built up a whole nation. Wow! The ultimate fertility right? Not being aware too of the future significance of Bethlehem Ephrata and of the family lineage of Boaz to come, they prophetically prayed for the offspring who was later to be named Obed that will form part of the lineage from Perez, son of Judah, to King David. And it doesn't end there. Beyond that, to Jesus Christ, son of David. Wow! The power of prayer by the elders and the leaders at the gates of Bethlehem. The house of bread that would later be the housing of the birthplace of the Son of God. 
And in answer to the earlier question of whether Boaz delivered, how could he not with such a prayer and support by the community? Signed, sealed, and delivered on behalf of God himself. Ruth 4, 13 tells us, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive. The Lord enabled her to conceive. And she gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he be famous throughout Israel. Indeed, Boaz may be the guardian redeemer or the kinsman redeemer, but total and complete redemption is in the hands of the ultimate redeemer, the true redeemer, Jesus Christ. Amen? Why am I going to say that? I'm going to explain in a very short while. But before that, I just want to pause for a moment. I feel that there's a need. The Holy Spirit has prompted me to just pray as an elder in the house of God. I just want to speak prophetically in God's name for those of you among us who is in a position of barrenness. I'm not speaking about barrenness just in terms of fertility, but it could be barrenness because you feel lost. Barrenness because you feel alone, you're single, or you may be elderly. Or barrenness because you're going through a dry spell in your spiritual walk, and you are feeling like you're stuck in a rut. Barrenness because you may be bereft of hope or loss of a vision. And I just want to pray for you at this point. Can we just bow our heads and just pray? If you are that person, you may want to lift up your hands and just receive from the Lord. In Jesus' name, may there be times of refreshing for you as the Lord brings forth a new thing in your life that He will do, a new season in your life that you could see what you couldn't see before and could hear and perceive and understand what you couldn't hear before. Oh Lord God, we pray, Lord God, that may you, you who are barren, you who are forlorn, who are you in the season of bleakness, may you leap like deers over your hindrances that come into your life and may you shout for joy after the seasons of this bleakness. Like streams in the desert and with waters gushing forth in the wilderness, may the Lord restore fruitfulness in you as you become like a tree planted along the stream whose leaves wither not and that you will bear fruit in season. Oh Lord God, may you dispel the seasons of bleakness and barrenness and brokenness in my brother and sister's life. May you replace it, Lord, so that they may rejoice in their productivity. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive it in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. There is a second observation in Ruth chapter 4 I want to share in closing. Ruth does not end as the main character here. It started off in chapter 1 with a spotlight on Naomi, and the book of Ruth ends with a spotlight also on Naomi in chapter 4. It says in verses 14 to 17 towards the end, the woman said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better than you than seven sons, 
has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. And the women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. The word Obed came from the Hebrew word Abad. Just now we were saying that worship, our worship leader Kimberly was saying, worship means worship. Abad means worship, to serve and to worship. And so Obed, as the noun itself, as the name given to the child, means one who worships. They name him Obed. And he became the father of Jesse, the father of David. And then towards the end, the very end of the book of Ruth, the genealogy was brought up and repeated so that David gets a double emphasis here. The focus at the end of the book pulls away initially from Ruth and then also pulls away from Naomi and then zooms in onto the son who worships and onto David. This draws our attention to the Davidic covenant. From a contract, it became a covenant. The Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, 13, where it is proclaimed that he is the one who will build a house for my name. Who is that one? He's the son of David. And I, the Lord says, will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And in fact, God is saying that he will establish forever the throne of the son of David, the Messiah. That's Jesus. That's Jesus Christ. So I think this is a pretty clear pointer to the fact that the birth of the son, Obed, the one who worships, paves the way for the true Redeemer that God would give rise, not only to David, but to David's son, Jesus Christ, who is the true Redeemer, the ultimate Redeemer. And that's what the book of Ruth points towards. Jesus Christ, the true Redeemer. And so the word Redeemer at the end of Ruth here, or the redemption, the word redemption, Goel or Gaal may be broadened out in the Davidic messianic sense so that it applies to all of us. By the grace of God, it's not only the Redeemer, the kinsman Redeemer for Ruth, but it broadens out and here, the Word of God tells us redemption is for each one of us under the Davidic covenant, under the covenant between the Lord God, the living Redeemer, and us. Hallelujah. So in closing, I just want to compare Boaz and Jesus. Even as Boaz was a near kinsman Redeemer, he says, I'm next in line in Ruth 4.4. Boaz was just a type. He was just defining the characteristics for the true Redeemer that was to come, Jesus Christ. Jesus, although being God, drew as near as possible to all of us, to humankind, through His humanity. What closer kinsman Redeemer can there be than Jesus Christ? Galatians 4 Verse 4 and 5 says this, When the set time has fully come, 
God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Do you see that closeness between the Old Testament and the New Testament? Scripture never contradicts each other. They complement one another. As a second criteria for the kinsman redeemer, Boaz was willing. In Ruth 13, 3.13, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. So apparent too was Jesus' willingness to die on a cross to redeem you and I from our sins. Romans 3.24 speaks this very clearly, that all of us, all of us are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Our brokenness, our humiliation, our shame, our bleakness, all taken within Jesus Christ's arms as He hung upon the cross for you and I. Hebrews 12.2 also confirms that by saying, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before Him, He endured the cross, scorning His shame, sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. What more willing can a Redeemer be than that for you and I? If you have not known this Redeemer in your life today, and you walk into this hall thinking, who are you going to meet? May I invite you to meet the Lord Jesus today? He desires to redeem you. He desires to restore you. All that brokenness, the bleakness, the confusion, the expectations, He takes it in His hands. Would you place your faith in the Lord Jesus today? And there will be an opportunity for you. We're going to open the altar afterwards. And I encourage you to come forward. We just want to pray with you. And you will have a personal encounter with the Lord Jesus. And thirdly, as much as Boaz was enabled to deliver, when he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive in Ruth, chapter 4, verse 13. Boaz fulfilled completely his role as a kinsman redeemer. But there's so much more in Jesus' ability, his eternal ability as a living redeemer to redeem us and to save us. Hebrews 7.25 says this, Therefore, He, He, who is the He, Jesus, is able to save completely those who come to God through Him because He's a living Redeemer. He's not a dead Redeemer. And He always lives to intercede for them. And then the next one, Job 19.25, is one of my favourite verses. I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that my Redeemer lives. Hallelujah. And that in the end, He will stand on the earth. Redemption. Signed, sealed, and delivered. Hallelujah. And that's the Redeemer we have. We have seen through the book of Ruth that God, in His often unfathomable governance of the world and His sovereignty, is always at work in our darkest hours, in the bleakest, bleakest moments. He enables us to overcome the most difficult obstacles, be it brokenness, bleakness, barrenness and everything else in between He draws us in supernaturally beyond the natural trappings of the little world we live in so that we may rise above ourselves to be like Obed the one that worships to worship the son of David 
Jesus Christ. And then we may grow and continue to grow forever in our finite capacity, that dimension of spirituality that God gives unto us when we call Him our Redeemer, Jesus Christ our Redeemer, so that we may grow in capacity to see His immeasurable glories. And this was what we sung about this morning. Jesus Christ, immeasurable glories. Hallelujah. Would you join me now in standing to worship again our true Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And I'm going to ask us to sing this song again, yet not I, but Christ through me. As we ponder on these lyrics, I want you to invite those. I want to invite those that need prayer. Just now I prayed for you, but you feel that you need someone tangible to pray with you. The altar will be open as the song is being sung. It could be an issue of barrenness, brokenness, or simply having a need for Jesus to sort out an issue in your life. Like Naomi, like Ruth, maybe not to that extent, but you want someone to pray with you, to bring you before the living Redeemer, Jesus Christ himself. Because not us, like Boaz, it's not Boaz, but it's God behind Boaz that does it. The altar will be open. And especially for those of us who have walked in and you want to know the Lord Jesus for the very first time, He's waiting here for you. I invite you to come forward. If you are a friend who has brought someone who has not known the Lord Jesus, ask him or her right now, would you want to have a personal relationship with this Redeemer? Would you want to accept the Lord Jesus? If you do, come forward. Come forward with them. Bring them forward. We'll pray together. Amen? Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Hallelujah, Lord God. We thank you, Lord God, for everyone of this lives you have touched, Lord. And we know, Lord, that it is only in you, in you, Lord, that we will find true redemption, Lord. Oh, Lord God, we thank you, Lord, that you are the God who brings about a refreshing, a new thing that, Lord, you will create and you do in each of these lives that are come, that are placed, that are brought before you, Lord. I pray, Lord God, that in moments like this, Lord, that are not to be missed. For Lord, these are Kairos moments, Lord, that you desire to bestow your touch, a refreshing touch upon each one that comes before you, Lord God. We thank you, Lord. We thank you that bring about a new thing. Streams of water in the desert, Lord, that you bring about a new life to those whose leaves will not wither, whose fruits will come in season. Thank you, Lord. And if that's you, if that's you, come forward, even as I close with a benediction. The altar is still open. There's still time for you to come forward. Do so, for this is a Kairos moment for you. Father God, I thank you, Lord, that your marvellous grace and your love touch your people this morning, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that the love of the Father, the deep and encompassing love of the Father may be one and all this morning even as they go out from this room, that your love that lasts two generations with those that come after you will be with them. And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that will enable us to surmount every moment of barrenness and bleakness and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit may be one and all until we meet again. And we pray all this in Jesus' name and all of God's people say, Amen. 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 God bless all of you.
May you go forth carrying the banner of the Lord Jesus Christ to wherever He sends you and bring the good news of the gospel to each one. Until we meet again next week, come again for our next service next weekend. God bless. Goodbye. See you again.